All right, well, kids, thank you for praying with us. You are dismissed to your classroom. Your teachers are in the back with the big sign. Um, as the kids head out, I want us to dive in, but I also realize I forgot to introduce myself. So if you're new here, my name is Eric Solomon. I get to serve here as the, the pastor of this congregation. And, and like I said earlier, we're, we're a congregation of Wheaton Bible Church, and so we're alongside uh, other pastors and other uh, communities that are out in West Chicago, and it's, it's actually my joy and my privilege to serve here as a pastor. If you're new here, I do want you to know that we would love to help you get connected. Any questions you might have, anything that we can help you with, there is coffee as an incentive for you to stay after the service. So take it. It's free for you. Um, but it's actually good coffee, too, um, but we'd love to answer any questions and help you get connected as best we can. So anybody you've seen serving, we'd love for you to just walk up and ask questions if you're feeling brave this morning. But if you're new here, or even if you haven't been here in a while, um, we are finishing up a series that we've been going through for 12 weeks now. Over the last 12 weeks, we've been looking at 12 biblical traits, 12 defining characteristics that are found in the Bible that give life to and shape God's church. Right, this morning we're finishing up our gospel culture series right before we step into Holy Week, next week with Palm Sunday, and we focused on the 12 traits that are in this series for three reasons. The first is that they, they, are, are, they biblically define God's church. The second is that they have historically defined God's revival of his church, God renewing his church. And third, I believe in our day and age, they have to culturally define God's church. Let me explain those three really quick before we dive in. Reason number one, biblically, these 12 traits spell out God's definition of what he means when he calls us a church. This, this series has been as much of a reminder as a reorientation, a reminder of who we are and a reorientation around what is essential for our church family so that we don't drift from who God has called us to be. But reason number two, historically, if we were to trace God's people through history from the moment Jesus resurrected all the way to today, and we looked at every instance where God's people were, by a special move of God's Spirit, working on mission, loving God and loving their neighbor, doing what God has called us to do, you would see traces of each of these biblical traits present in those movements. These traits are evidence, not the cause of God's Spirit moving among God's people. They're, they're in a way, the fingerprints of God at work among his people, reviving, renewing his people, God's spirit at work for the sake of those who are not his people. And that brings me to my third reason, culturally. We as a church are convinced that these 12 traits are, are identity markers that have begun to fade in the church today. Convinced that churches, even like ours, have struggled to maintain these defining traits and that these traits then have slipped from the present into the past and are stuck there condemned as as backwards and ignorant by an increasingly anti-god society that no longer just ignores god but labels god as dangerous and labels christians as the worst kind of fanatics and so this is why we as a church have taken the time because we are convinced that the most faithful witness we can have to the good news of jesus the gospel of jesus christ is a countercultural one to be culturally marked by these 12 traits, by, by that kind of testimony, it will enable us to be faithful to who God has called us to be and, and, and produce godly fruit leading people to Christ. So biblical, historical, cultural, that's why we've been in these particular traits, but I'm not just going to remind you of the why before we keep going. I also want to remind you of the what. What are the traits that we've been going through? Because I want to hear at the end, go through all of them again. So here they are. I'm going to put them on the screen. Because you could see it in the logo back there, but they were really tiny. And if you have eyes like mine, you need this. So we started with these traits, with the supremacy of the scriptures and the centrality of the gospel. Why did we start there? Great question. Thank you for asking. The reason we started there is because these two traits are the fountain from which all of the other traits that we're going to talk about flow. Right? The word of God must be at the foundation of his church. And the gospel of God must be at the core of his church in order for us to be who God has called us to be. Without God's word as our highest authority and the gospel as our lifeblood, we wouldn't even be in the ballpark of what the Bible calls a church. From there, with those things established, we then started to establish our dependence on God, the one who is worthy of worship, looking at the power of prayer and the pleasure of worship. Our eyes have to be fixed on him before we can do anything as a church. And so we pick those next two traits to make sure we didn't run off and to, to do a bunch of stuff quite yet. 
Because the Bible demands this, this dependence on God through prayer and, and finding pleasure in our worship of him. And the gospel enables that. And so with our eyes then firmly fixed on Jesus, we looked outward. Now we started to get at what we could do, the pursuit of the common good. Elevating our work as holy, no matter what we do. Participating in God's common grace throughout the world. We even established the significance of leadership, remembering that leaders are to be honored in the right order. Right? With Jesus as the chief shepherd and all the leaders that the Lord places as under shepherds which then turned us to the practice of the means of grace. Where we started to demystify baptism and communion, while at the same time saw how our chief shepherd communicates his grace to us through the ordinary elements of water, bread, and wine. And so having established that we are people of grace, who receive grace for salvation, continue to receive grace as we live out our discipleship, we then went to the discipline of generosity, which led us unsurprisingly back to the gospel. Because we are saved by a generous God, and so we serve a generous God, and as his newly adopted children, we are generous people. The week after that, we focused on an essential part of our generosity, the urgency of evangelism, where we not only receive the gospel with gratitude, but we communicate the gospel with urgency. Not forcefulness, forcefulness trying to bully people into the kingdom, but with an urgency that believes God when he says, this is a matter of life and death. And all of this brought us to the priority of community and the beauty of diversity. We don't just do things together like some kind of exclusive club. We live into our new identity as the family of God expressed in local churches, and we, we need each other. We, we serve each other. We, we live into the beauty of this new family that is united by one thing and one thing alone. Not our hobbies, not our life stage, not even our politics, but Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And all of this can be summed up in one word, discipleship. What we have been working towards since the beginning of this series is not uh, unveiling some new, creative, cutting-edge mission and vision for our church family. It has always been the ordinary, faithful, biblical, historical, and yes, countercultural reality of a family of disciples being who God called us to be, a church with a gospel culture. And gospel culture is disciple-making culture. A culture that makes disciples who make disciples. That invites people into life with Christ, not as, as spectators or as academics trying to think about something really cool, but as disciples, active disciples, disciples who make disciples. And so this is where our gospel culture series ends with our 12th and final trait of a church marked by a gospel culture, defined by the Bible, aligned with the history of God's work among his people, and testifying counterculturally to a society that needs Jesus desperately as much as we needed Jesus desperately. This 12th final trait of a biblical church is the commitment to go and make disciples. As a church family, we are committed, uh, dedicated, devoted, through and through unmoved with, from our identity as disciples who make disciples. Why? Because we don't need to try and find a new, cutting-edge, fancy mission of God's church He's already given it to us in the text this morning. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew 28, 16 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the cart in the back, or yes, you can follow along with me on the screen. And I'll actually ask you to stand as we prepare to read God's Word from this text. So this morning, I'm inviting you to listen to the words of God. In the wake of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, He gives this, these words to His disciples. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is God's word. You may be seated. You have to start romanticizing your life. It's how a, a famous audio clip on TikTok begins. You have to start thinking of yourself as the main character. Because if you don't, life will continue to pass you by and all the, the little things that make it so beautiful will continue to go unnoticed. So take a second and look around and realize that it's a blessing for you to be here right now. 
Main character energy is what users are calling it these days. One writer explains like this, main characters are, are enigmatic, they're, they're interesting. Maybe troubles befall them, but, but they're clever, they figure out solutions. Main characters are, are rebels, they're, they're one of a kind, they're, they're cool. Main characters are, are heroes and role models. Main character energy. It's actually a new name for an ancient problem we all have. We all want to be at the center of the story. And not just any story either, at least not for me. I want to be at the center of an epic story, right? Something that's uh, uh, with meaning and with purpose that's cool and I'm defeating whatever problems that I need to defeat and giants. The problem is that like the clip explains, we have to romanticize our lives to do it. The definition of romanticizing is making something unrealistically ideal. To pretend it is better than it is. To make the ordinary extraordinary, even if we have to use the magic of filters or edits. I think we have a main character energy problem when it comes to discipleship. To being disciples of Jesus. You see, I think discipleship is plagued by at least one of two problems. Either we think about discipleship and we think it's too big. Right? right, It's something for the really serious Christians, right? the, the, those who are actually cool enough to act like main characters, or we think it's too narrow. Right? It's all about me, myself, and I. How much of the Bible can I memorize? How much can I do to prove myself to God and to other people? How can I be a Christian with main character energy? And so even thinking about that, the next question that comes to mind is, what comes to mind when you hear the word discipleship? Maybe it's fear because you think it's something for those who have their acts together, right? For those really, really special Christians. Or maybe, on the flip side, maybe it's pride because you think you have your act together. Maybe you think you're just what Jesus needs to do his mission in the world. Or maybe, maybe, maybe you're new to Jesus. And when I say the word discipleship, it just sounds weird and like super religious. And what are we talking about? Jared Wilson, an author, asked the same question in his book called The Imperfect Disciple, Grace for People Who Can't Get Their Act Together, which is my favorite subtitle of a book anywhere. He tries to reframe this main character energy that lurks in the background with these two problems. So he writes, when I ask what comes to mind when you hear the word discipleship, I'd love to hear people answer more along these lines. What do you think he's going to say? Wilson gives some surprising answers, right? He continues, I'd love to hear people answer more along these lines. Believing God has a plan for me even when I'm afraid he doesn't. Believing God loves me even when I feel like nobody else does. Trusting that God is doing something for my good even though my life has always been terrible up until now. Following Jesus even though my feelings speak way more loudly. Denying myself in order to do what's right although I don't really want to. Imagining a time where I won't hurt as much as I do now. Imagining a time when my spouse or my child won't hurt as much as they do now. You know what I love about these statements? They're real. They're difficult. They're true, but most of all, they are remarkably ordinary. They are anti-main character energy, preferring to center life around the real main character, Jesus. To get even more theological, this theologian Michael Horton picks up the remarkable ordinary nature of discipleship in his book entitled Ordinary, Sustainable Faith in a Radical and Restless World, second favorite title. He explains it like this. He says, like every other area of life, we have come to believe that growth in Christ, as individuals or as churches, can and should be programmed to generate predictable outcomes that are unrealistic and are not even justified biblically. In other words, we want big results sooner rather than later. And we've forgotten that God showers his extraordinary gifts through ordinary means of grace, water, bread, and wine, loves us through ordinary fellow image bearers, and sends us out into the world to love and serve others in ordinary callings. This morning, as we study the text of Matthew 28, 16 through 20, which is arguably one of the most revolutionary missions the world has ever known, I want us as a church family to not only know but believe that the commitment to go and make disciples, to follow Jesus in his mission, is not about being extraordinary, 
It's about ordinary people who know and trust and follow the one who is truly extraordinary. Discipleship is a supernatural word for ordinary people called by an extraordinary God to come and follow him. And so this morning, I want to realign discipleship with the way the Bible defines it and make the argument that discipleship is not some kind of advanced Christianity with with main character energy, but the call of everyone who has been saved by Jesus. It is for all of us. Because everyone who believes in Jesus must follow him as a disciple in the ordinary stuff of life. Not like main characters, but like people who point people to the main character, the truly extraordinary one. So let me put it like this. Disciples are ordinary followers of the extraordinary king who help others follow that king, empowered and accompanied by that king. Disciples are ordinary followers of the extraordinary king who help others follow that king, empowered and accompanied by that king. If you're not used to it now, this is my sermon in one sentence. I think it's a definition that Matthew 28, 16 through 20 gives us of discipleship. And it's also how I want us to walk through the text, taking apart each one of these phrases. Disciples are ordinary followers of the extraordinary king who help others follow that king, empowered and accompanied by that king. So let me start with that first phrase. Disciples are ordinary followers of the extraordinary king. How does Matthew 8, 28, Matthew 28 show us this? Look at the text, starting at verse 16. If you didn't catch it when we read it, we inter- we're interrupting this story as scenes are transitioning. So verse 16 shows us when we read, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So let me catch us up quick on what's happening in this scene. We are in the uh, post-resurrection part of the story. Right? Jesus has died. And there are rumors circulating that he didn't stay dead. And some of Jesus' disciples, a group of women to be specific, actually meet the risen Jesus. They're the first ones to to see him. And he tells them to pass a message along to the other disciples. He tells them, tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. And so these ladies, they, they run to where the other disciples have been gathering. Perhaps these other disciples have been cowering afraid of what will happen to these, these followers of this failed revolutionary, maybe starting to get a little annoyed at all these rumors, he's, he's dead. Or maybe they're a little hopeful about it all. Maybe he's not. These women, they burst into the room and they tell them what Jesus had, had told them. And so they decide that we're going to obey what, what apparently Jesus has told us. And so they begin this journey, a hundred-mile journey from Jerusalem to Galilee. I want you to think about that for a second. These 11 disciples, two less than when they started their journey with Jesus, missing a betrayer and the one that he betrayed, are now on a journey to supposedly meet the one who was betrayed, beaten, and buried. A hundred-mile journey, right? For a hundred miles, what are they thinking? Well, were they silent the whole time? Did they talk about what they were doing? How, how weird this was? Why were they obeying the commands of someone who's supposed to be dead? Because he might not be dead. In fact, because he isn't dead. The scene continues at verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. The walk of faith finished with a scene of mixed emotions. So, some rushed forward, even though their legs were weak from travel, but, but others were a little bit more tentative, hesitant, unsure. Not because they didn't love Jesus, but because they were, they were afraid to get their hopes up. This is actually the same word that Jesus uses of uh, another disciple, Peter, in a different scene where Peter starts sinking, even though Jesus said he could walk the waves with him. You have little faith. Don't just get your hopes up, let your hopes hold you up on the waves and in worship. Your Jesus is no longer dead, he is alive. Here's here's what I love about this scene. There is only one extraordinary person here, the one who is being worshipped. Jesus has come back from the dead like he said he would, which is miraculous, extraordinary, hard to believe and deserving of worship. But the scene is also filled with a bunch of ordinary people who ping-pong back and forth between worship and doubt, faith and fear, unbelief and joy. And isn't that just like us? These disciples are desperately ordinary. 
the, the stories of the gospel over and over again paint them with ordinary colors, struggling to trust Jesus, uh, uh, battling pride and elitism, mi- mi- missing it over and over again. And yet they still get to follow Jesus. Because you see, Jesus is not after extraordinary people. He's not looking for main character energy. He picks ordinary people to save with his extraordinary grace. Because disciples are ordinary followers of the extraordinary king. And I'm starting with this in this sermon on the commitment to go and make disciples. Because before we can get to what it means to go and make disciples, we need to understand what it means to be disciples. Discipleship is an identity before it's a mission. Only disciples make disciples. And so let me define for you what an ordinary follower of the extraordinary king is. Disciples are people, ordinary people, let's keep that straight, who believe in the gospel and are being transformed by the gospel, who trust in the good news of Jesus that he died for their sins and came back to life to offer anyone who believes true life by his spirit, who who believe that they are sinners in need of a savior, in need of salvation, and that salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. But as disciples know, it's not enough to just believe in the gospel. You see, Jesus is not just after converts. He is after disciples. And disciples have their whole lives changed by Jesus. Disciples are followers of Jesus in every area of their lives, which is what makes Christianity so brilliantly ordinary. Because disciples are disciples at home and at work, bringing groceries to your neighbor or doing the dishes, showing up to work on time, stopping to actually say hi to the houseless guy at the corner. Disciples are not only being transformed by the gospel, they they live out the gospel. And even as they live out the gospel, they proclaim the gospel. You see, the transformation of the gospel, the life change that the good news of Jesus brings when the Spirit of God gives us new hearts, is something that goes from personal to public right away. It's why Christianity actually starts with baptism, a very public experience. There's no such thing as private religion, or, you know, that may work for you in Christianity. Our lives as disciples are on full displays for all to see. We are walking, talking billboards of the good news of Jesus. Not just that people may see what we are doing and how we are living, but that they might also hear from our mouths the good news of Jesus. Put all of this together, and disciples are ordinary people who reproduce gospel disciples. We don't just believe the gospel. We are not just being transformed by the gospel and living it out and even proclaiming it. We are also actively trying to make disciples who make disciples. People, ordinary people who follow Jesus are extraordinary king. This is discipleship. And only disciples make disciples, but every true Christian is a disciple. This is not Christianity 201. This is right from the beginning. Because disciples are ordinary followers of the extraordinary king. And so the next question that I have for us this morning, after what comes to mind when you hear the word discipleship, is are you following King Jesus? Are you actually following Jesus? Stories, like we've talked about, revolve around main characters, and the main character of the story of life is Jesus. This is actually how we got ourselves into trouble in the first place. Right? We tried to become like God and, and shine the light on ourselves. Genesis 1 through 3 explains. The problem is we were never meant to play the leading role. And so instead of becoming what we hoped for, our best selves, we became what we most hated and dreaded, our worst selves. Turned in on ourselves, dark and twisted by sin. We were desperate by salvation. We were desperate for salvation, but deluded into believing that we could save ourselves. Our best efforts at playing the main role only made everything worse. Until Jesus. Until King Jesus, who stood on the mountain in Galilee, having conquered death, called his disciples, ordinary imperfect disciples, who have believed the good news that he is the only Savior who conquers death and has conquered sin, until King Jesus started to make everything right again. Are you following the main character or are you trying to be the main character? Are you following King Jesus? You can follow King Jesus even if you go back and forth between worship and doubt. Our text is very clear about that. Because you see, discipleship is not about never doubting, but continuing to follow and bringing your doubts to the one who turns them into worship by his resurrected presence. Discipleship is not about never doubting. It's about continuing to follow and bringing your doubts to the one who turns them into worship by his resurrected presence. That's what happened in this story. 
Are you following King Jesus? Disciples are ordinary followers of the extraordinary king. But the definition doesn't stop there. There are also those who help others follow that king. Look at Jesus as these disciples worship and he overcomes their hesitation with his resurrected presence. Look at him as he speaks from his authority as the resurrected king. Verse 18, Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus begins by explaining that something has changed. He came back to life and God the Father has given Jesus all authority. Not just some and not just more, but all authority. All of it, from top to bottom, heaven to earth, all of it. And so resurrected and authorized as king over all, Jesus commands his disciples, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. That last uh, phrase is actually an echo from what we talked about last week when we went all the way back to Genesis 12. Do you remember that? The command of the risen king is not a new command, but a calling that extends what God told his people to do from the very beginning in Genesis 12, blessing all nations of the earth. And now the disciples of the risen king fulfill that calling with the biggest blessing that there is, with the thing we also desperately need, the gospel. Go and make disciples of every nation, of all nations. Skin color, language, geography, culture, none of these are barriers to entry in the kingdom of God. Everyone is called to become a disciple by faith believing in the good news of Jesus. And all disciples are called to participate in the discipleship of others, to, to introduce them to Jesus, help them grow in Jesus. Why? Well, let me give you two reasons why. Love and obedience. Obedience, our second reason, is in our text. But before we even get there, we need to get back to the first reason. Why do we make disciples? Because before Jesus gave us this great commission... He gave us the great commandments to love God and love your neighbor. Why do we make disciples? Because the great commandments enable the great commission to therefore go and make disciples. Let me show you what I mean. If you want to flip back in your Bibles to Matthew 22, 34 through 40, I'm just going to read this text really quick. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? If you just had to pick one. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second, because typical Jesus, he's going to keep going. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. Everything God has commanded is summarized and holds together with these two commands. Why do we make disciples? Because of love. Because God loved us first. First John explains we love others. That's the only reason we love others, because he actually showed his love to us. Why do we make disciples? Because of love. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that, that Christ's love compels us to preach the gospel. We make disciples because we are disciples, ordinary followers of the extraordinary king, who are overwhelmed and transformed by God's love. And it is that love that then enables the second reason we make disciples, because of obedience. Look back at Matthew 28. Jesus tells his disciples, I have all authority. And so because that's true, go and make disciples. An authoritative king who is the one we love, who brought us back to life and therefore enabled us to love, now commands us to obey, to make disciples. And so because we love him and we love others, because we have been changed by the love he has shown us in the gospel and we are now able to obey him and do what's right, we obey and make disciples. So here's the gospel logic. Love God, love your neighbor, therefore go and make disciples. We don't go and make just because. We don't go and make because it's our idea. We don't go and make in order to be accepted and loved by Jesus. We are not putting in our time or our years of service in order to get the benefits of being part of the kingdom. We go and make disciples because his love has changed us and enabled us to love him and to love others. And the most loving thing we can do is to introduce people to Jesus, to help others follow Jesus. 
That's why we help others follow Jesus. But then Jesus also kind of answers the how. How do we help others follow Jesus? Through the gospel. Now, I want to be clear as we keep going in this text that disciples are made by the gospel. And I'll explain why I want to be clear in just a moment. But I want to be crystal clear. It's not because of some fancy program. It's not because of a compelling speaker. It's not about a cool new way of doing church or even following church traditions. Not yet Christians become disciples by the gospel. The good news that Jesus died for our sins and came back to life for us. That if we believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Savior of our souls, your death, his death counts for us. And God forgives our sins and offers true life. The good news hitting the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit is the only way that anyone can be saved. The good news that makes us disciples and that keeps us as disciples. And this is why Jesus talks about what he talks about in the next couple verses, about baptism and teaching. Look at verse 19. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We've already talked about baptism in a previous sermon in this series when we've talked about the means of grace. But, but to be clear, we don't make disciples by baptizing them. Baptism does not save. We baptize disciples. People who have become disciples by faith, by believing in the gospel, they demonstrate that new internal reality with the external reality of baptism. This is the beginning of the gospel. That's why I said it's the, the gospel that initiates. It's our initiation into the faith, publicly proclaiming the gospel in baptism into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Trusting in our new status as, as newly adopted children of the Father. Declaring that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Depending on the work of the Spirit to make us more like Christ. The gospel saves us and baptism is the initiation into our discipleship. Which leads me to say, if you haven't been baptized, I want to encourage you to seriously consider it. If you read through the New Testament, a Christian who has not been baptized is, is to be direct, an impossibility. A, a contradiction, if you will. It's a problem in the text. Where if someone finds out you haven't been baptized and people are like, what? Publicly testify to your faith in Christ in front of your church family. That's what you're doing when you're baptized. Let us celebrate with you what Christ has done in the way God has commanded us to celebrate. One pastor explains that if you can't do that in front of your family in Christ, how can you expect to do that in front of people who don't really like Jesus or enemies of Jesus who don't really like Christians and what they stand for? Disciples make disciples by proclaiming the gospel and disciples demonstrate their discipleship by being baptized. But discipleship doesn't even stop there. And neither does Jesus, because the gospel doesn't just initiate, it also instructs. He continues in verse 20, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Don't just get them in, explain to them what life looks like now. Discipleship is not just conversion, it is lifelong. As Eugene Peterson says, it's a, it's a long obedience in the same direction. Every Christian is a disciple, and every disciple makes disciples by proclaiming the gospel and getting people started in their life with Christ and then supporting and instructing them in their new life with Christ, teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded. And when I say that, when Jesus says that, it's not just the red letters in your Bible because Jesus is God, and if the Scriptures are God-breathed, that means all of Scripture is what Jesus has commanded. Disciples make disciples by introducing people to Jesus and helping them grow in Him. In other words, disciples are ordinary followers of the extraordinary king who help others follow that king. And so my next question is, how are you helping others to follow Jesus? How are you introducing people to King Jesus? Living your life for Jesus and looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus, praying for people to come to know Jesus, right? Friends and family and coworkers and neighbors. Did you know that there are people that come in here week in and week out who, who don't know Jesus? who've been invited by a family member, or there's the testimony of some people here who know Jesus that, that just showed up because they, they felt like they had to be here. Are you praying that Jesus would help you introduce someone to him here on a Sunday morning? But the other side of discipleship is important too. How are you helping others continue to grow in Christ? Do you participate in the discipleship of your brothers and sisters in Christ here? Are you making yourself available to newer disciples to meet and read the Bible with each other in fact, I'll even go one deeper. Do you know the Bible and study the Bible so that you can teach others what Jesus has commanded? That doesn't mean you have to have a master's degree in the Bible in order to do that. 
It just means you actually have to be in the Bible. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be faithful. How are you helping others follow Jesus? Disciples are ordinary followers of the extraordinary king who help others follow that king. But here's my last phrase. We don't do it alone and we don't do it on our own. The text makes it clear that disciples do all of this empowered and accompanied by that same king. Look at verse, the last three verses of our passage. I kind of broke it up on the screen. You can open up your Bibles if you want to see the whole context. But Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make. And then the last verse of our text, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, I've already made a big deal of this, but I'm going to keep making a big deal of this. Jesus has all authority. Right? Not just some authority, not just the highest authority, but all of it. It has been given to him, and it is based on that authority that he commands. But the other side of that coin is that disciples have been authorized by him. Disciples make disciples on the authority of Jesus. In the first chapter of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples we're supposed to be witnesses after he sends his spirit. After he sends his spirit. The people of God, disciples, followers of Jesus, they obey the commands of Jesus, not on their own strength, but by depending on the spirit. And that reality doesn't just apply to avoiding temptation, to being kind or, or, or being peaceful, but the command to make disciples as well. We are empowered to make disciples by the Spirit of God, by, by the authorized and resurrected King. And, and when I say that, I don't want you to misunderstand me here because you might hear the way I'm talking and say the words like empowered and you might think, this sounds like some Star Wars use the force, tap into some kind of energy thing. That is not what I'm talking about. The Spirit of God is not some impersonal force. He is the, the personal God present and active among his people. That's why I can say the risen king is present with us. Jesus ends his commissioning with this promise. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now in this promise, there's actually three promises embedded within it. Let me show you really quick what I mean. Well, I can say he's uh, empowering and accompanying. The first is embedded in the phrase, I am. It's a little hidden here in the English, but, but Jesus uses a phrase in the, the Greek that almost got him killed in another situation. He uses the phrase, ego eimi, I am, which is in Greek, the Hebrew name of God revealed to Moses way back in Exodus, I am who I am, Yahweh for short. Just in case you forget, Jesus says, let me make you a promise that starts with my authority. I'm not just anyone. I am. I am the God of the universe, the rightful king, the creator of everything. I am. The second reality that's embedded in this promise is the next phrase, with you. Because this phrase is grounded in the name that the gospel of Matthew actually starts with, the name a lot of us know around Christmas time, Emmanuel, God with us. Here it is at the end of his gospel, not just the beginning, almost as if this isn't the final chapter but just the beginning of the next chapter. God with us as we introduce more and more people to him and help more and more people follow him. He promises to be with us. Yahweh, Emmanuel, always. And that's the third reality. He is Yahweh, Emmanuel to us all the way to the very end. God's promise is not dependent on our obedience, but on his faithfulness like we sang about. First Timothy, we read that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Because God is faithful to the very core of his being. It is who he is. And it's who he is to us. For disciples, those who believe in Jesus, been saved by Jesus, transformed by the gospel, living out the gospel, he is faithful no matter how well we accomplish his great commission. And he is with us as we obey his commands. We don't do it on our own. He is actually with us when we, we ask our neighbor if we can tell them why we love Jesus. He is, he is with us when we pick up on a question that our coworker asks and, and we actually ask them, hey, can you, can you tell me more about that? He is, he is with us when we take the brave step to ask a friend to read the Bible with us, to check out Jesus for themselves. He is, he is with us when we, we teach and guide people in their faith, discipling them and, and helping them follow King Jesus. Disciples are ordinary followers of the extraordinary king who help others follow that king, empowered and accompanied by that king. And so here's my last question for us. Do you believe and act 
like the power and presence of King Jesus, go with you. That the, that the king over everything is actually with you. That the, that the spirit of God is actually in you, empowering you to help others follow Jesus, to be a disciple and also make disciples. Do you act like it? Or do you try to keep it to yourself? Worried about what others might think. Worried that you might not know enough to help someone follow Jesus. Listen, family, this is, this is precisely why I keep using the language of ordinary. Disciples are ordinary. Ordinary followers of an extraordinary king who lives in and through us. To help others follow that king, empowered and accompanied by that king. We're not called to be extraordinary. We are called to be faithful. Disciples make disciples. This is, this is a, a non-negotiable. And we can get better at it. But I don't want you to let inexperience or fear keep you from being who Jesus saved you to be. A disciple who follows him with everything you have, with your whole life, and helps others to do the same. This is the calling of every disciple. This is the calling of a church that has a gospel culture because gospel culture is disciple-making culture. And so as we end this series, that's what I want all of us to understand, and not just understand, but hold on to. To be a biblical church, a, a church defined by the Bible and aligned with the history of how God works among his people, a church that will be a true gospel testimony in the society that God has placed us in, at the end of the day, we need to be disciples who make disciples. That's, that's what everything in this series has been about, disciples, individually and together in a church family who hold the Bible as supreme, who hold tight to the gospel at the center of everything we do, disciples who worship the true God dependent on him through prayer. Disciples who join his work in the world, pursuing the common good, knowing that ultimately people need to be introduced to gospel good. Disciples who not only accept, but honor the leaders that God has put in his family to help them be disciples. Disciples who don't just want grace one time, but over and over and over again, practicing the means of grace, celebrating the baptism of new familia in Christ, and eating together at the table in communion. Disciples are generous because God is generous and are, are urgent in evangelism because the day of salvation is now. Disciples who prioritize the community of God's people because he has made a brand new family among us, a new family out of every family of the world. Disciples who marvel at and participate in the beauty of the diversity of God's people, knowing that someday we're going to be singing and worshiping side by side with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And most importantly, disciples who are committed to loving God and loving their neighbor by obeying the command to go and make disciples. Gospel culture is disciple-making culture. And discipleship is not a program or a series of stages. It's a culture where everyone is involved in everyone else's discipleship. So even as I talk about that, this morning I actually want to invite you into a way to be involved in each other's discipleship coming to the table together. Sometimes people come and say, hey, I, 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 can't, I can't sing. I had, I, I had a really hard week, and, I, and I'm really struggling with the Lord. And I said, listen, that's okay. Let us sing for you this morning. Let us hold you up by faith by singing for you. Or, or, or struggle to take communion as believers because they, they think that I, 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 I've really messed up this week, or I've, really messed up, I've had a really hard time. But if you believe in Jesus, this table is for you, not because you're perfect, but because he is, and he offers you forgiveness. He died to make it possible for you to eat at this table. So while we're taking communion together, we're reminding each other of the grace that Jesus died for us to have. This table is not for perfect people. I've said it before. It's for repentant people who acknowledge they need a Savior. So I want to take a moment before I keep going and, you know, get all uh, hyper about the communion table and have you open because these are really hard to open. And I want us to eat them together. So I'm going to give you a moment to make all the crackling sounds. And open both of them, because I've gotten stuck on the, the juice part before too. And those people who are still crinkling are like, oh, I get what he meant now. All right, family, you ready? We gather around this table as disciples, as the family that God has made, followers of Jesus, 
who make a way for other people to become family, followers of Jesus, because God has open arms. We, we gather at this table with, with exclusivity in one hand and inclusivity in the other. Exclusive because the only way to come to this table is through Jesus, but inclusive because anyone who believes in Jesus is invited. There's nothing else that needs to be done. There's no other credential that needs to be checked, no other box you need to fill out for us to gather at this table together as family because what makes us family is Jesus. What brings us to the family table is Jesus. And so as we prepare to take and eat and raise and drink together, I want to read again the words of Hebrews 10, 19 through 23 that we read and prayed through earlier as a reminder of what brought us to this table. Listen to these words, Familia. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It is his blood and his body that made a way back to God. That's what it cost him to save us. And so if you have not confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I plead with you as we go to take this cup and take this bread that you would see that. That your your situation, like our situation before Jesus, is desperate. You, like we were, are lost in your sins. The only way to be saved is to believe in Jesus, that he is who he says he is, that he has done what he said he would do, that he died in your place for your sins, that he has come back to life, that you might be be clean and that you might be offered life and be back in relationship with the God who made you. If you have not believed, I urge you before we eat and drink to believe. But if you have believed in Jesus, I urge you before we take and eat to remember to remember what the gospel says it took to save you. This is the table for repentant people, like I said, people who confess their sins confident in the forgiveness of God because of Jesus. And so as we prepare to eat and drink, I want to encourage us to take a moment as we sit silently to confess our sins before the Lord. Not because we need to kind of make a way back, but because he's already made a way back and he offers his forgiveness freely. Take some time silently now to reflect, to pray, to confess, and to praise God. Merciful God, like the old prayer teaches us to pray, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, would you have mercy on us? Would you forgive us? that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Lord Jesus, we confess and we repent and we eagerly receive the forgiveness that you won for us. We hope in the repairing work that your broken body has accomplished for us. And we hold on to hope as you continue your repair of what sin has broken in us. Amen and amen. Let's take a moment then and hold the bread up together. You see, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-24, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat and remember together. Oh, Lord. Assured of your forgiveness, we now rejoice in your love. Your blood spilled out for us is is more precious than silver or gold, and we approach your throne in confidence because of it. 
Like the old hymn says, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This morning we plead nothing but the blood of Jesus, which has taken away our sin and given us life. We pray in gratitude and in all of what you have done for us, Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's raise the cup together. Paul continues in chapter 11, verse 25. In the same way also, he being Jesus, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink and remember together. Paul ends in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, saying, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Familia, over and over again, we preach the good news of Jesus through this communion table. We, we remember what Jesus has done, and we hope for his return. We proclaim as we eat and drink that anyone can follow Jesus by faith. Anyone who confesses their sins, receives his forgiveness, follows him as Lord and Savior, And so I pray that this table would continue to point us to the greater meal we're going to have in heaven together. Until then, I want us to pray right now that we might proclaim the gospel, not just in communion, but with our whole lives together as a family. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, as we're about to sing, your power has no end. We have seen your mighty work in our own lives. We've we've seen what you can do because you have done it in our lives. You, You saved us. Sinners who are dead in our sin and were actively rebelling against you, without hope in the world, you saved us. There is no soul that you can't save. Like you said, nothing is impossible with God, and so we sing to you, God, of revival, that you might revive us with hope. Remind us that you have overcome death and that you've already won. That the gospel we believe and proclaim is powerful enough to break any chain and free every slave to sin. Would you continue to work in and among us as a church family? We entrust ourselves to you. We pray that you would bring revival here, Lord, that you would change us, that you would continue to make us more like Jesus. Would you revive our faith? We want to trust you for greater and greater things here. Like the Father in the Gospels, though we believe, would you help our unbelief? Help our unbelief that you can do incredible things even here in Streamwood to save people from their sins, to continue to advance your kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness. We trust you. Make us more and more faithful to who you have called us to be as a church here and now. We pray all these things trusting and entrusting ourselves to you. Amen and amen.